welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. The sermon text this morning is from Psalm 125. These are the words of God. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a light, that it is life, it is food for us. I ask that you would indeed feed us, you who are the chief shepherd, the tender shepherd, who guides us, who leads us into all life. I ask that you would give us that life abundant by your word now, in Jesus' name. And amen. 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 Please be seated. When was the last time that we had a godly Christian governor in the state of Washington? When was the last time that we had a governor who met the qualifications of Exodus 18.21, which says that rulers must be taught and know the law of God. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, who hate a bribe. Deuteronomy 1 adds, uh, they must be wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men. Uh, In the Law of Kings in Deuteronomy 17, the first thing that the king was to do when he got into office was what? Handwrite for himself a copy of Genesis through Deuteronomy. You can have your kids do that. You want to be a king, you need to handwrite the Pentateuch uh, and study it. So who was the last governor who met these qualifications for office? Um, I don't know the answer to that that question. Uh, There have been 22 governors since Washington State was admitted to the Union in 1889. Uh, But at least within my lifetime, I was born in Seattle in 1989, uh, there have only been five governors, all Democrats, 
They are Jay Inslee, Christine Gregoire, Gary Locke, Mike Lowry, and Booth Gardner. Now, uh, I do not know the personal beliefs of these five governors, uh, but we do have a public record of their executive orders, uh, judicial appointments, public proclamations, the bills they've signed and vetoed, etc. These are, these are searchable, public domain. And, and at least based on just those actions alone, uh, one thing is clear. The agenda is not and has not ever been submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. Our governors have not heeded Psalm 2, which says, Be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. As Jay Inslee kissed the Son. As our, as our president, Joe Biden, kissed the Son. And we wonder, is God angry? Our governors are a president. They have not heeded Romans 13, which commands uh, the punishing of evil as defined by God, and the praising of the good, as defined by God. And in many cases, they have done uh, the reverse. Um, as of, uh, at least this morning, uh, the homepage of the governor's official website is a picture of a woman holding up a sign that says, uh, abortion is health care. And attached to it is an article that says the following. <clears throat> California has banded together with Oregon and Washington to stand up for women and to protect access to reproductive health care. We will not sit on the sidelines and allow patients who seek reproductive care in our states or the doctors that provide that care to be intimidated with criminal prosecution. We refuse to go back and we will fight like hell to protect our rights and our values. That's, that's the homepage of uh, the governor. Your governor, my former governor, I'm in Idaho now, uh, our governor, your governor, together with Oregon and California is willing to, quote, fight like hell to protect the right for a woman to uh, kill her baby. Uh, in biblical terms, uh, that's called rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah, to quote Psalm 2, two again. So that's the highest office in uh, Washington State, the highest human office. And the question I want us to answer this morning is, uh, what recourse do Christians have when they are living under this kind of government? What recourse do the saints have when they are living under, uh, to use Psalm 125, the scepter of wickedness? Psalm 125 has uh, some answers for us, so uh, let us turn and consider uh, this psalm. Uh, we'll begin with just the background and the context for Psalm 125. Uh, this is one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. You guys know, when do the Psalms of Ascent begin? Does anyone know? Any bright young children out there know? Or old children? <laughs> so, so the Psalms of Ascent begin with Psalm 120. And I'm sorry, I know Presbyterians, we don't do back-and-forth dialogue so much. <laughs> That's my Pentecostal background. You, you, you can respond. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent begin with Psalm 120, and it ends with Psalm 134. There are 15 of these, and uh, Psalm 125 is one of them. 
And these are, are psalms that were likely sung as the Jews would ascend up to uh, Jerusalem. The young men under the law were to appear three times for uh, the festivals. And so these are pilgrimage psalms. I believe after this sermon, we're going to sing Psalm 124. This is one of those uh, pilgrimage psalms of ascent. So uh, in modern vocabulary, if you're taking a road trip to Jerusalem, uh, this is what you're playing uh, in the radio. Now, uh, we are not told as we are in other psalms, uh, when this psalm was written or who wrote it. Sometimes we're given that information, and when we're not given it, uh, commentators, we can just feel free to uh, speculate, right? Um, not exactly. Uh, the context for all of these psalms of ascent, uh, I believe, likely comes from the last line in the Hebrew Bible. Now, uh, the Hebrew Bible is ordered a little bit differently than our English Old Testament, so... Old Testament in our canon ends with Malachi. In the Hebrew Bible, the very last book is what we would call Second Chronicles. So Second Chronicles is how the Hebrew Bible ends. And let me read you the very last verse of the Hebrew Bible. It says, uh, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's how, if you're a Jew, that's how your Bible ends. Let him go up. In Hebrew, it's this, this verb, Allah. It's a very common word. And the Psalms of, of Ascent, same word, Psalm, Song of Allah, the, the goings up. The Song of the goings up would be kind of a crude, literal translation of this. So uh, commentators have pointed out that these uh, songs of ascent have the context of faithful Jews who, after their temple had been destroyed by Babylon, and after they had been scattered from their homelands and spread out throughout the, the whole kingdom, Cyrus issues this decree. Remember, they'd been in exile for 70 years, and they are uh, commissioned, called to, invited to go up, to go up and rebuild the house of God, rebuild the temple that Babylon had burned. And we see this actually explicitly in the psalm that comes right after Psalm 125. Psalm 126 starts with, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion. Uh, we see this also earlier in Psalm 121. This is one of my favorite psalms. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There is this expectation, if you're going through the Judean hillside, uh, that is a dangerous route, right? If you're going to be uh, traveling, you uh, want to make sure you got your sword on you. Or, I don't know, is it Glocks out here? What, what do you got? <laughs> In Idaho, everyone carries, right? Every, everyone's got guns over there. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. You're going up to Jerusalem. It's going to be a possibly dangerous journey. Uh, you need God to protect you. So uh, you can actually walk through these Psalms of Ascent, and together they tell a story. Uh, they capture the sorrow and sadness of exile, of living in a foreign land. Uh, they capture this danger of embarking on the journey back to Jerusalem. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah praying? They're, they're traveling with all of, this, uh, all of this money, all these resources, and he's ashamed to ask the king for a bodyguard. So what do they do? They, they're praying kind of Psalm 121, that God would protect them on their way back to uh, Jerusalem. But they also especially capture 
uh, the future hope and anticipation for a day when God dwells in Zion again. Now that's kind of uh, the climax of these psalms. It's the future hope of the glory of uh, Zion. And you'll notice if you read through the Psalms of Ascent, there's a uh, frequent reference and mention of Zion. So that's the kind of broader content context of the psalm. Let's turn now uh, to its contents. Uh, we could kind of divide the text into three uh, sections. Uh, verses 1 and 2 describe uh, the faithful. Verse 3 gives a, a promise to the righteous. And then verses 4 and 5 are a sort of a prayer for judgment. So we've got picture of the faithful, promise to the righteous, a prayer for judgment. Let's just walk through each of these three sections together. Verses 1 and 2, uh, the psalm begins this way. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. So here we're, giving, uh, we're given this image um, of what trusting God does to you. Right? What does living faith, what does trust in the Lord do to you? And the answer Psalm 125 gives us is that it makes you like a mountain. It makes you like a mountain. And not just any mountain, it makes you like Mount Zion. Zion was the city of David. It's where the Messiah's throne is. Psalm 2.6 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Uh, Psalm 48.2-3 Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. It's, it's got this royal, kingly connotation. And Psalm 125 says, If you trust in the king, if you trust in the Lord, you will be like his mountain. You'll be like the king's mountain, immovable forever. Now, what, did, what does this mean to be uh, unmoved forever? Uh, because most of us in this room, I'm guessing, trust God. We've walked with him for all of our lives or some of our lives. And yet, uh, there are all kinds of times where uh, things seem to move us, uh, shake us even. The, they don't make us feel like a strong, immovable mountain. So what does uh, this psalm mean when it says that we're like this? Well, uh, let's start first with what it doesn't mean, okay? And, and we're helped because we have this image of Zion, and we know about Zion from the rest of the Scripture. So we know that being like Mount Zion does not mean that foreign armies never conquer you. Because what did Babylon do? They conquered Jerusalem. Uh, being like Mount Zion does not mean uh, that your house never gets plundered and left you desolate. Again, Babylon plundered and laid waste to Zion. This is what the whole book of Lamentations is about. Being like Mount Zion does not mean that you are exempt from God's discipline. If anything, it actually means uh, the opposite. It says in 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. Where's that? Right, spiritually speaking, it's in Zion. He goes on, if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay, so that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean then to be like Mount Zion? Well, it means that you are a holy dwelling place for God. 
You are God's palace, the place where the king lives and rules. Uh, Paul puts it this way. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? A, A temple is a palace for the king, for God. When you trust God, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, he identifies you as holy real estate. You are a royal possession. And with that identification comes certain privileges, certain blessings, like everlasting protection, salvation, the resurrection of your body, entrance into the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Trusting in the Lord gives you all of the most important things in the world. Communion with the triune God, fellowship with your creator, life eternal with him. That is what it means to be like Mount Zion. Uh, You have the word hidden in your heart. You have Christ in you. Can anyone take that from you? No. They can kill you. Jesus says, why would you fear someone who can just kill the body but cannot kill your soul? There's a certain sense in which you are invincible when you trust in the Lord. Paul says these really strange things in uh, his letters. He says, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, put off my body. I'm going to to suffer. I'm going to die. And yet, not one hair of my head is going to perish. And you think, it feels like hair is perishing all the time (laughs) out of my head. Head, right? I don't know what the resurrected hair is going to be like, but, but, but Paul has confidence, he can speak this way, that not one hair of his head is going to perish. So uh, if you are not a Christian, first I would uh, invite you to trust God. Trust him. Uh, there is no better offer than this, to be made like Mount Zion. And if you are already a Christian, I would just exhort you, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, departing from the living God. The life of a Christian is a life of childlike trust in your father. And when you trust him, your father makes you like a mountain. This is what Psalm 125, 1 and 2 are saying. Trust in the Lord is what separates mountains from those who are not. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, has this line uh, in Acts 20. So in Acts 20, he's saying goodbye, this really emotional moment with the Ephesian elders. He's uh, telling them about uh, the wolves that are going to come in after he leaves. They're on the beach, I believe, and they're they're kind of uh, weeping, saying these tearful goodbyes. And this is what he says to them. He says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. Paul's going up. Paul's ascending. He's going to make that journey. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Verse 24, but none of these things move me. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was like Mount Zion. He knew that persecution, change, tribulation, and yes, death awaited him, and yet Paul could look those things in the face and say, 
I am unmoved. Don't you want to be like that? <laughs> I want to be like that. How was that possible? Was it just because he was an apostle? Right? Well, no, because Psalm 125 doesn't say uh, those who are apostles will be like Mount Zion. It just says those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So maybe we could ask, what specifically was Paul trusting the Lord to do? What guarantee can you and I bank on such that we also are unmoved, come what may? I believe the answer is given to us in Romans 8, 38 to 39, where Paul tells us what his own inner conviction was. He says this, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What makes someone like Mount Zion, what will make you immovable, is this knowledge and conviction that God loves you and you cannot be separated from His love. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people and causes everything in our life to serve our good. To serve, as he says just a few verses before this, our conformity to Jesus Christ, that Christ may be the firstborn of many brethren. Do you believe this? Do you trust Him? This is the picture that we are given of the faithful. Moving on to verse 3, we are given here a promise. It says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. The first thing thing that we can draw out from this is that uh, if we are living under a scepter of wickedness, uh, it's probably because some of us have been indeed unrighteous. Okay, This is kind of an axiom of the world, of the way God runs it. Yes, the saints can be a righteous remnant, They can be salt and light that keep the city from being utterly destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the normal course of things, a man reaps what he sows. God is not mocked. And he often gives nations, states, counties, families uh, what they ask for. Unrighteous citizens elect unrighteous rulers. Right? God gave California a chance. Do you want, uh, what's his name, Gavin Newsom? Uh, Do you want him to be uh, ruler of your state still? And they said, yes, more please. And God said, okay, here you go. Unrighteous citizens often elect unrighteous rulers. And God often gives them the tyranny and the slavery that they desire. And so what is actually judgment and punishment on unbelievers is for the righteous, a testing. It's chastening. It's discipline. And that is the state that most of us are living in, pretty much across the United States. We are enduring the consequences of both uh, the church's uh, apostasy and compromise and the world's worldliness. That is the recipe for a disaster. So what then is the promise for the righteous? First, to answer this, we need to figure out what does, uh, to what does the land refer here? Uh, it says, uh, on the land allotted to the righteous. What is this land? 
Uh, this language of allotment uh, signifies the promised land, right? the land that Joshua conquered, and then how they divide it. They divided it by, by lots. Uh, but when we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus extends the boundaries of the promised land to actually encompass the entire earth. As it says in Revelation 21:7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. Or Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit uh, these square miles of Canaan. Right? No, it says, yes, the earth. Uh, we see also in Ephesians 6, Paul expands the blessing of the fifth commandment from the promised land, Exodus 20, to the entire earth. It says, uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now remember, this is written to the Ephesians. If you don't know uh, ancient geography very well, uh, Ephesus is about 1,200 miles from Jerusalem. Right? It's a long way from the promised land. And Paul is saying to obedient, honorable Ephesian boys and girls that if you obey your parents, you will live long in Ephesus. In Christ, whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to us. And what belongs to Jesus? Everything. So all the world, all the world that Christ purchased is land allotted to the righteous. We will inherit all things. Well, next we might ask then, is the promise that no wicked ruler will ever reign over us? And again, I think the answer to this question is no. And the history of Israel and the church bears this out. There were many times when tyrants rose to power in order to punish God's people. Right? Read the book of Judges. This is the pattern that happens over and over again there. Uh, if we look more closely, we'll see in this text that the promise is that the scepter will not rest there. That is, it will not take up permanent re residence. Uh, the godless will not rule over the godly forever. That is the promise here. Uh, that's how mo uh, grammatically it could go either way, but uh, most commentators take it as this temporal promise. If they are reigning, there's a reason, there's some idolatry, there's wickedness in the land, but that reign will not be forever. It might seem like there is no end in sight. It might look like the wicked are actually increasing in power winning elections, passing legislation. But what does it say in Proverbs 21.1? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Think about that. We worship the God who has the king's heart in his hand and can do whatever he wants with it. Remember, what did God do to Pharaoh in the Exodus? Hardened his heart. What did God do to uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, in the days of Hezekiah? Well, angel of the Lord went out and slaughtered 185,000 in one night. He goes back home, and he's murdered by his own people. What did God do to Nebuchadnezzar? He started feeling himself, and so God turned him into a beast for seven times, however long that was. And then he is converted. 
Now, he wasn't a very good dad because what happened to it with his son, Belshazzar? Belshazzar's drinking out of the royal cups and there's writing on the wall. But God does do something with Cyrus, king of Persia. How does the Hebrew Bible end? In Isaiah, uh, I believe it's 45, Cyrus is called the Lord's Messiah. Here you have a foreign king who God is saying, uh, the, the kings that are descended from David have really apostatized, and I'm going to set the royal crown, the royal prerogative on you, Cyrus, king of the Persians, which was king of the entire uh, world, essentially, at that time. So what is the story of Scripture? But God making kings and kingdoms to do his bidding. He raises up tyrants to execute his judgments. He makes Babylon his lion, Persia his bear, Greece his leopard, and Rome his dragon. And when he's done with them, he shatters them to pieces. The scepter of wickedness shall not reign forever. Now what does this mean for us today? Well, for one, it means that Washington State and Oregon and California and every other state and every other nation, everywhere you go, belongs to Jesus Christ and at some point is going to be yours. Right? This earth belongs to Jesus and it belongs to his body, which is us. Right? All of it, they're renting. Right? The church is the one who owns it in Jesus Christ. And just like God would not, would not allow Roe v. Wade to go on for longer than one a jubilee cycle, and just like God cut the great tribulation short in the first century for the sake of His elect, so also God has set fixed limits upon every other scepter of wickedness. Gay marriage is not going to be a thing for very long. Okay, It might seem like they're uh, projecting into the future. This is the future. But no, God owns the future. And gay marriage will not be a thing for long. The woke mob won't be a thing for long. Stating your preferred pronouns won't be a thing for long. We don't know the time limits God has set, but we have this promise that it will be cut short lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do you see the logic of it? God knows the limits of what His people can handle. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that He does not test us beyond our ability. One day, together with Abraham, all of us are going to inherit uh, Centralia, Olympia, even Seattle. <laughs> it, uh, pause in my sermon. I just have to say, it stirs my heart to see this kind of uh, church being planted, a school hopefully being started. Sounds like you guys may have a building in the works. Uh, I, I was uh, born in Seattle, raised in uh, Kitsap Peninsula. I went to school at, at UW. I've been all around here. And uh, I've seen a lot of churches fold. Uh, I've even been parts of some of them. <laughs> but it is a wonderful thing to see uh, this kind of church planted here, faithfully worshiping, that did not exist uh, when I grew up here. 
This is what we want for our children and our grandchildren because eventually we're going to inherit all of this. Maybe we'll be cast out for a time, but God always brings us back. We are going to inherit all things in Christ. Back to the sermon. Finally, uh, we come to verses 4 and 5, which are a prayer for judgment. We could, we could uh, frame this section, how then shall we pray in the meantime? How shall we pray? Here's a model for us. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Uh, There's uh, basically three petitions in this prayer. Number one, we should ask for God's blessing and favor on the upright. When the government is not rewarding good and punishing evil, when they are subsidizing vice and taxing virtue, it is very easy to kind of just throw your hands up and say, uh, in vain I have kept my hands clean. What's the use? It's very easy to become frustrated, uh, cynical, discouraged, to disengage, to lose that trust that we are to have in the Lord that makes us like Zion. And so we must, of course, pray against this hardness of heart in ourselves. And also we should ask God to make us like the land of Goshen during the Egyptian plagues. Remember this? It's hailing over there. Not over here. There's famine over there. Not over here. There's judgment over there. But not on our household. We should ask God to make this distinction between the saints and the godless. To ask Him to pass over our, our homes while He judges our nation. We ask Him to plunder the Egyptians for us. It says in Proverbs 13.22, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. We should be asking God to plunder the Egyptians so that we can build a house for his name. So we ask for God's blessing, but we should be careful when we ask for this. Uh, We should ask only after we have made sure that we are indeed good and upright in heart that we have not stretched out our hands to iniquity, that we have not fallen in love with the world, that we are not envying the wicked. Because otherwise, we might call down this second petition down upon our own heads, which is, we ask God to remove the wicked from the land. And there are uh, kind of two categories of people that are listed in this petition. Uh, One is those who turn aside to their crooked ways, And the other is the workers of iniquity. Uh, Workers of iniquity are are the godless, the heathen, those walking the broad and easy way to hell. Whereas those who turn aside, who are they? They are the ones who once walked the straight and narrow. Maybe they attended church alongside of you. Perhaps they even received the word of God with joy. And yet because they had no root in themselves... They endure only for a time until they, like Demas, having loved this present world, fall away. So yes, we pray for their repentance. We pray for God to call them back. But we also pray that God will judge the reprobate, that the land might be healed and cleansed of the wicked. 
is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Finally, finally, we ask for peace. In Hebrew, it's shalom. We ask for peace upon Israel. Now some, uh, some take this as a prayer for peace in modern day Israel, which, I, which is fine, you can pray for that. That's uh, not what is uh, being referred to here. This is a prayer for peace upon the true Israel. Right? The church of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem, peace upon those who have in worship this morning, come to that heavenly Zion, Hebrews 12. This is a prayer for all of us who have been grafted into the olive branch, Romans 11, of God's people. This is a prayer for the peace of the church. Shalom is the rest that weary saints desire. And it is the purpose for which we fight the good fight of faith and wage the good warfare. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So why do we pray for our leaders? Because we desire peace. Peace to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Peace to build homes that our grandchildren can inherit. Peace to start businesses that will bless our neighbors. Peace to worship God in spirit and in truth. That is why we want a Christian government that God's blessing and favor would rest upon our land. I'll close with this. There was a time in America, although this is hard to believe, when you had to be a confessing Protestant Christian if you wanted to hold public office. Uh, This is the oath that magistrates had to take in uh, Pennsylvania in 1705. I profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, His eternal Son, the true God, and in the Holy Spirit, one God blessed forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. That was the oath in Pennsylvania, and there were similar requirements in South Carolina, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Maryland, Georgia, New Jersey, and Delaware. And there are many quotes like this from American history that could be multiplied. A lot has changed in 300 years. But God's word and his promises never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if we will again trust in the Lord, he will make us like Mount Zion. If we will repent of our unrighteousness and call others to do the same, the scepter of wickedness shall not long remain. And if we will turn to the Lord with all of our hearts, trusting the one who died and rose for our salvation, he will by no means cast us off. For what does Isaiah say? Of the increase of peace and of his government, there shall be no end. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for these glorious promises. I ask that you give us faith as a people. We ask that you would indeed establish righteous rulers over us. That perhaps our children and grandchildren would grow up 
to be those people who will seek the good of the city according to your word, who will do righteousness, who will banish wickedness from the land. God, we want to see our state, our counties, our nation publicly confess that you are Lord, that you would once again bless us and heal us from our iniquities. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.